and welcome to Meanwhile in an Abandoned Warehouse. For this episode, I'm sat here in a hotel bedroom in Zagreb with Sarah Feinstein and Lucy Wright. Sarah is a teaching fellow at the University of Leeds and Lucy is an artist and research fellow also at the University of Leeds. And the reason we're sat here in a hotel in Zagreb is because we've just been to a seminar together. And the seminar is called, was called The Age of Cultural Participation, Democratic Roles and Consequences. And it took place yesterday and the day before Thursday and Friday, 7th and 8th of November 2019. And it was organised by the Cultura Nova Foundation here in Zagreb. And they are part of one of uh, three partners of a network at the Cultural Partnership Network. The other two partners are the Centre for Cultural Policy at the University of Leeds and Take Part at Aarhus University. And the seminar was all about this. I'm going to read a little quote here in a high-pitched voice um, (laughs) about what this seminar was about in particular because there have been a series of seminars. This is the third one in the network. So this seminar in Zagreb I quote, explores issues, concerns, uh, issues and concerns about the limitations, paradoxes and perspectives that culture, cultural and artistic policies and practices are facing around the notion of participation in the context of democratising democracy, end quote. That's quite a long sentence about what this seminar was about and the what we're going to do today is talk a little bit about what we've remembered from the last two days what stuck with us questions we've come away with and also to reflect a bit on the format of the seminar which involved international speakers from the UK the US obviously from Croatia we're speaking Spain Peru Denmark India Italy Norway and Germany. Those are some of the places I've picked up on um, looking back through the programme. So I think to start with, we were going to talk a bit, uh, yeah, to reflect on on what we've remembered. And Sarah, I'm going to ask you first, put you on the spot. (laughs) And uh, yeah, what did you come away with? So the thing that stuck with me the most was in the On the first day, the keynote with Andy Miles from the University of Manchester talking about the Understanding Everyday Participation Project. And in the Q&A, Birgit Erickson from the University of Aarhus made a comment about cultural policy is cruel optimism. And so that kind of stuck with me. And so I'm going to read a quote from Duke University Press's um, webpage for Lauren Berlant's Cruel Optimism book. That was published in 2011. So, quote, a relation of cruel optimism exists when something you desire is actually an obstacle to your flourishing. It goes on to say that Berlant describes the cruel optimism that has prevailed since the 1980s as the social democratic promise of post-war period in the United States and Europe has retracted. People have remained attached to unachievable fantasies of the good life with its promise of upward mobility, job security, political and social equality, and durable intimacy, despite evidence that liberal capitalist societies can no longer be counted on to provide opportunities for individuals to make their lives, quote-unquote, add up to something, end quote. And so what I thought was interesting about that as someone who's interested in cultural policy is to think through, is cultural policy just cruel optimism? And maybe in the same way, 
could expand that to like what does that mean in terms of cultural democracy as well and that can it ever function in a way to achieve the kind of hopes and aspirations that we have for it or is it always going to replicate and reproduce some kind of hierarchy what do you do you think there's a way out of that or is that just the state of things no i think that there has to be a way out of it and maybe the Maybe recognizing, I think what's potentially exciting about thinking about through that is that there's, on paper, right, a lot of cultural policy sounds fantastic, right? And you can, and it ends up being total shit. So, like, maybe the one way to kind of unpack all of that that discourse is through something like looking at it as, as what part of this is cruel optimism, what part of this is... But I think that ultimately... There have to, there has to be. I guess it's about scale, right? So, like on a on a on a scale, I think it's totally achievable. But on a national level, I don't know what, what happens to that. There are obviously better and worse forms of policy that doesn't instrumentalize humanity's capacity to express itself and whatnot. You know. towards some end but maybe also it needs there needs to be like proper revolution about it too so but I think there's potential there for cultural policy to do something else I think a lot of your work actually looking back at you know what the arts council was doing at at different points and looking at kind of workers councils and labor movements and the cultural policy that kind of came out of those maybe is that something to revisit too I think this is one of the um, you know the key things that always comes out of these kinds of discussions, and it did come out in the final discussion that we had yesterday. This idea that we can never really achieve the cultural equity that we would like to achieve while we remain in a system of social inequity. And how do we address that? Where do we place our energies? What what is our kind of what's our game plan to address this? Do do we start by trying to dismantle the hierarchies that mean that, that you know people don't have equal access to all kinds of resources and, and kind of yeah or or are we looking to culture you know I, I have no problem with the idea of optimism I think optimism in itself is a problem and as long as that cruelty only stays with with me and with us in the room that, that you know, we are maybe disappointed sometimes that we don't achieve what we would like that's okay my problem is more whether optimism becomes a promise or a statement that we already do this so if we're saying mm-hmm. we are achieving these goals we are giving equity this is democracy we're giving cultural democracy and then we're not then I think that becomes you know really problematic do you think there was something that I I was I was kind of excited to hear so many mentions of cultural democracy in the last two days because um although it is a term that's becoming more fashionable I think in the UK I wasn't aware of it being used again (laughs) so uh so much in other parts of the world but it seems like, yeah, from, from Peru to India to Germany, you know, this sort of a term that is being used by the small little cohort of people who are coming to this event. And, you know, on the one hand, I feel excited by that. And on the other hand, quite concerned and like, going, what's going on here? How, you know, how is, how and why is it, is it um, in the lexicon again? And it, it goes, I think, yeah, back to the thing, well, what, what do we mean by it? What's happening on the ground? How is it? I guess the sort of issue with things being policified <laughs> is that they do look great on paper and they can pretend to be all sorts of things, but actually what is happening in practice, especially when we're, we're talking about advanced, um, you know, the neoliberal capitalist societies, democracies, and one of the slides that sort of I've stuck with me and I, I hope I took a picture of 
was that. I know it's really, and it, there was a big disclaimer about it being simplistic and theoretical framework, but mm. was the slide about the different types of democracy. Mm. Louis Bonnet's slide, and he explained the difference between liberal democracies, illiberal democracies, and totalitarian states situations. And I think most people in the room, from all these different places around the world, obviously not everyone was represented, could identify with the, um, certainly with the illiberal um, democracies column. And that, and essentially, you know, that most people are experiencing neoliberal societies, which purport to be liberal democracies, but actually present and in reality are kind of carrying out illiberal policies and practices and so I think that's like that was my like alarm bell moment of like okay let's just really keep thinking about what it is we're banging on about and trying to kind of achieve yeah I don't know not really got any answers that's just a, a long-winded <laughs> no but I think it's really I think it's a really there are a couple things in there that are really interesting and one of them I think that you're kind of pointing to is why that framework had resonance which definitely did with me as well is something that Lucy signed about kind of the failure of language. So we're using all of these terms, but we're all clearly meaning different things. And one of the, I don't remember the guy's name, but he was sat at the end when we were kind of in little groups. And he was uh, here from, uh, he's a cultural worker from Zagreb, and he was talking about, he kind of made the point that, you know, there's been 30 years of democracy in Croatia, and what does that mean in comparison to the UK that's had however many years of democracy there or, you know, the United... And what do we understand by democracy from both the legacies of our own past, right, and the kind of... So I thought that was all... That that just kept coming back to me about language. Like, what is that common ground that we have? When somebody's evoking cultural democracy, what does that actually mean? What does it actually look like? I mean, my background's more in sort of anthropology and ethnography, and there's a really great um, ethnography by a guy called Nigel Rapport, um, who's talking about diverse worldviews in a rural village, and that's not relevant except that what he found in this study when he, he worked with, with, with people in this village over a long period of time was that people would be speaking with each other, but they were frequently kind of crossing, they were, they were speaking across each other. They assumed, everybody assumed that they were speaking about the same things, and they actually overestimated how much they had in common with people. It was kind of the opposite of what you would perhaps instinctively think. It, 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 people imagined that, they, that everyone was like them, and that when they said these things, that, that everyone agreed. And, but actually people would be having these conversations at, at massively cross-purposes. And I do feel that happens in, in lots of spaces, not just in rural villages. It certainly happens in an event like yesterday. You know, what do we mean by democracy? What kind of democracy? Are we looking at a, a high democracy or a low democracy? You know, is it a democracy in name, which still you know, which gives people the, the, the idea that they're participating in a democracy, but actually doesn't allow them to do anything about the kind of underlying social I- issue? I mean, I, I felt as well, like, even though we had people in the room from different places we again we didn't have time really to understand what what those the the, the context in which people were coming from and it kept being reiterated how context is so so important in thinking about this research and and understanding each other but one thing again i found quite useful from a uh, again it's quite a western perspective but is the 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 power uh, and the the dominance of the the paradigm of the democratization of culture or it was also called cultural democratization to confuse matters anyway i've still i felt that that and i I, and that's something i sort of found in my research is this certainly is the case in the uk post-war the democratization of culture is the paradigm that has so much weight and is normalized that is the kind of state of things 
and it was pointed out, I think, was it by Andrew uh, Miles, about the post-war context is so important to consider in relation to the Cold War. Um, and it wasn't Andrew, was it? Who was it? Sorry. No, it was... Uh... Oh, remember the... Oh. But you were mentioning it as well earlier, that, that there's this moment when you have Western democracies taking kind of conscious cultural policy stand to be different from communist cultural policy, which meant let's bang on about free freedom of speech and freedom of expression and autonomy and excellence. Yeah, excellence. Mm. And I thought also democratisation of culture fits into that very nicely. Thank you very much. So there's a no wonder that that, you know, there's a background, a broader global kind of politics to why we have the cultural policies we do. It was uh, Louise... Oh, uh, Louise. Yeah. Bonnet? Bonnet? Bonnet. Bonnet, Bonnet. 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 yeah. Bonnet. yeah. Yeah, and I thought that that context was so important because then that made me think, okay, yeah, no wonder cultural democracy as a different paradigm is marginalised in the context of the, the history of the UK, but also potentially you could see why it's marginalised all over the place. And that made me even more fiery about the fact that it is cultural democracy is a threat <laughs> to capitalism and you know neoliberal democracies. I don't know if they will ever overcome that, but it's uh, on its own. But it's a, it's a it's a paradigm that. that is dodgy basically and kind of doesn't really fit the, the narrative of power in the West. And I think that that's why it's at least linguistically being co-opted, um, particularly in the UK, right? Yes. So like there's been that shift within like the last five years that, that you know, with the Arts Council and their report on cultural democracy. And I think that there's, you know, obviously been a lot of cultural policy criticism around inequity of investment in art and cultural infrastructure maybe being you know rebound the rebalancing that they've um report that came out and all of that's kind of okay well this idea of cultural democracy maybe has rhetorically an opportunity to redeem these cultural monoliths and so that's why it's also kind of I think back to this language thing and what do we mean by this is becomes kind of dangerous because this is going to be just a new way of hiding um, the democratization of culture, right? Or is it going to land us in a a position where maybe we can actually see some kind of changes? And what is all of that based on? And Lucy, you were, something we were talking about was the issues with, I mean, I I have this constant question myself around the relationship between cultural democracy and broader societal political um, change that is based on a more equal society, etc. Big question mark, where is the artist in all of this? What's your... Well, I I mean, yeah, so I I should probably, you know, precede this by saying I've only really been involved in cultural policy for a few months on a relatively part-time basis so I my my, and I think this this really you know it really stood out to me at the conference how unqualified I felt to kind of contribute to discussions you know I I felt like I'm not informed enough to really give a kind of a useful or meaningful um, response but I also felt that my experience of being in the room as an artist you know as someone without that kind of that background, that language um, to tap into, it was probably something that a lot of people would feel in relation to you know, these issues. And we obviously speak a lot about how important it would be to widen the kind of voices who contribute to this debate. And you know, we want to dem- democratise research, we want to democratise policy, and not only culture. It's part of a wider picture of, of you know, achieving a more equitable society. How how can we do that in, in, in such a way that people are you know, feel able to contribute and, and bring something 
to the table. I mean, so a question that I have, and, and I, again, it's a, maybe a stupid question, but you know, how, how cultural is cultural policy? To what extent does it matter, did it matter at the seminar this, this week that we were talking about cultural policy? I didn't always get a very strong sense of the culture within that. And I was intrigued when you read out the... Um, the little uh, description of what the seminar was going to explore because, again, I don't know if this is a, 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 just a terminology I'm not familiar with, but when it said artistic policies, mm. cultural and artistic policies, what, how are we differentiating between that? Do, is there a difference between that? I, I, I was chairing a panel uh, yesterday about how policy might go about balancing artistic autonomy with, you know, with, with the drive to democratise culture. And I asked the question of, you know, to what extent is it policy's responsibility to protect the autonomy of artists because I know that you know, working with artists that sense of autonomy is seen as very central to, to being an artist, to what art actually is and, and, and I, as far as I could tell most people you know, on the panel felt very strongly that that was not in any way a, uh, you know, a responsibility of cultural policy and I feel conflicted about that myself you know, I'm, I'm completely aware of the kind of discussions and the problematic idea of the expertise of the artist as a, as a product of an elite system which already excludes People, certain people, certain bodies, certain backgrounds. But I don't know where the voice of the artist was necessarily in, in the discussions yesterday. And I don't know. And I think that happens so often in many, in all like conferences. I mean, this was a, a small seminar compared to big kind of academic conferences, mm. but it was still predominantly, as well as I'm aware, academics mm. who were there, I think. And the academic conferences I've been to, because I'm now in academia, are exclusively academics. <laughs> because they're the only people whose institutions will pay for them to go there. So even if you're a freelance, and I think that's more, that's where I'm at, is like the, almost like the, the employment status situation of people, how, how excluded are you from conversations depending on your employment status, let alone what your label you give yourself and how you identify as cultural worker, artist, curator, researcher but it's this, you know, you're basically not 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 entering, not you don't have a place at the table unless you can no. either pay yourself for yourself or, or some you've got an, an employer who can pay for you to be there. But then the question of the role of artists, I think particularly in, certainly from a kind of cultural democracy paradigm, the role of the artist is very, is questioned massively because the I th- and I haven't resolved this in my thinking really as to how um, you can on the one hand, which is what I've tried to do, is fight for the you know the rights and of artists to be understood and paid properly as as a, as a like any other worker would be as a, with freelance status. And if I'm interested in role, you know, the rolling out of cultural democracy, to, <laughs> that in a way undermines. The very status of there being someone separate, a job separate for, for artists, in that it's something that is so much embedded in, in the kind of structures of every day. Not to say that everyone can be an artist necessarily, because I think that's often attached to cultural democracy, but you're actually questioning the construct of, of artist as a category, I think, through thinking through cultural democracy. I'd love that's a whole other episode. I'd love to hear that Let's one. Me that too. We, we were discussing it over dinner, though, the other night. It's that thing of who who is in the room at these events. Yeah. You know, and from a totally self-centered point of view, I'm a precariously employed academic. You know, by this time next year, I won't necessarily have this job. I won't have this job, and I might not have same any job. So my position here is very temporary. I also feel that as someone who comes from a you know, fairly working class background, that you know that I have. We were talking about that idea of survivor's guilt, almost. You know that I'm somehow allowed to be in this room 
when my peers, you know, who that I grew up with, certainly wouldn't be. And how do I justify that to myself? How do I kind of, yeah, reconcile that for myself? You know, do I, and I, and I have to go, well, okay, well, I, you know, I've, I've gone through a particular educational background and I've achieved a particular level of, let's call it expertise in quote marks, you know, and, and that's why it's okay for me to, to be in this room and to, and to enjoy the privilege that it is to travel to Zagreb. And it's a privilege. An, an enormous it's, privilege. It's ridiculous. And we have to, I, I feel as though we have to, as the scholars in the room who are enjoying that privilege and, and, and have enjoyed obviously many other privileges we have to be willing to give some of those things up in order to yeah, allow you know not allow but you know, to, to, to widen the, the pool of voices we hear do um, you so to, so to completely interrupt you do you think that what you just said would be the same from that standpoint of cultural democracy and the autonomy of the artist is that a false question that you're saying is asked or do you think that that's also something that's part of it that there's a sense that those who have privilege, in air quotes, have to give some of that up, whether that's their autonomy, whether that's their prestige. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know is the answer. I don't know whether it's... Is it a process of giving up? So I was, I was thinking, you know, in terms of how could we move forward with this, you know, with, with the conference, is there a way that we could... You know, I've always felt, with, with all of the conferences, I've enjoyed them very much, but I've always felt that, that part, participant voices in particular are always harder to, 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 to hear in the room. How would we invite people to join us in this space and what would that mean for them? Would it be about changing the way we have the discussions? You know, I think you raised it in your contribution on, on the, the, the Thursday about how even the kind of architecture of the, of the building that we were in kind of informs some of the ways that we behave in there and the, way that the level of comfort we feel. And those of us who maybe inhabit those spaces more often will feel more comfortable in those spaces. Let's and just others. describe the setting. Okay, it was an incredibly beautiful, grand building. I don't think I've ever been to a conference in such a smart venue. These enormous kind of windows and big gilded doors and it, it was beautiful it made you feel very small very small in this grand architecture and also it setting. had a um, it was it was inaccessible for anyone absolutely it's yeah. unable you know it's a disability I mean yeah mobility so issues mobility yeah. issues so it's like a big flight of stairs yeah which in the UK you'd hope no one would ever organise a public event that was inaccessible <laughs> But that's uh, maybe the different, you know, obviously all different laws and, and circumstances here, but it's still worth... Yeah, and I wondered about that because I was thinking, I was like, oh, I wonder if I just asked if there's a lift or if there's some other way to get there. Because I just kind of didn't bother. And I don't have massive mobility issues, but stairs aren't my friends. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I just, it didn't occur to me to collect, because I just, just, I made that assumption because I didn't see anything in that but may, there might have been there, was no but there wasn't yeah did you um but um but also so the architecture was what it was and that had an effect perhaps on who could who, who could visit who could partake and the format itself of course we were talking about as well with the the structure of keynotes and panels um with a few questions afterwards and then there was that important moment at the end with an hour and a hour an hour and a half where we could do small group discussions mm. and a visit to a cultural centre as well on the Thursday evening where we had a presentation from them about the setup and there was also wine in the house. <laughs> um, again, up a flight of stairs. So we were talking as well about formats and how often, again, the sort of dominant format for events, for, for conferences and seminars seems to be there are some people who are talking at you for, <laughs> for a day or two and you might get a chance to ask a question. But when the content of the, the, the thing you're all focused on is 
participation or cultural democracy or things that are around about shifting and challenging power structures and power relations um, it just seems to me quite interesting that we replicate the same formats literally in the architecture and the layout of the chairs and the people talking at you for, yeah. for a while although that is you know we all got a lot out of that process yesterday and you know it's not to undermine that we are all quite interested in other formats of organising and coming together and creating spaces to think together so if we were to organise <laughs> an event <laughs> coming together of I was thinking you know the, 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 the participants for example that were talked about in some of the presentations the agro farmers in Kylie's presentation uh, the, the, the trans women in Arundhati's presentation um, the the uh, the, the, the members of the artist collective Mauricio was talking about you know if they were to if there was money I don't know where that money would be from to bring groups of participants together to organise to, to reflect to kind of create policy to do whatever it is they want to do what would that look like that thing I thought that as far as academic primarily academic com- or hybrid academic some other people in the room conferences go the first one they did in Oris really stuck with me because of the format that they used. And what I will say that they did, I think there was a, I think there was a small um, conference fee for Leeds, but Oris Zagreb were free to right. sign up for and go to. And I think you know you were talking about, and we were all, all have been kind of talking about the, the disadvantages of being precariously unemployed and in academia. And one of them is the the price yeah. of participation for conferences and so I really appreciated that that wasn't part of of this but what they did in ours which I thought was amazing and I wish every conference would do is when you came in to sit down you had to sit at a table with two artists from ours I think then there were like two so artists or people uh, artistic practitioners, people who are working in the field of art, and I think then there were two, two academics from Denmark, and then two kind of inter- UK or international people. And it might have, there also might have been, it was like one UK and one Croatian academic. Right. But it was, but it was all people you didn't know, and you had a little, na- you know, it was like a wedding, <laughs> you know, where you go and you, you know, you have a little nameplate and you go sit there. And what was amazing about it was that it balanced the voices that were at the table you were talking to, but it also meant that you got to talk to people who, like, I was didn't present at any of these three. I just went to them because I thought it was interesting. So, like, you know, people who weren't on panels were sitting and talking to maybe some people who had been. So it, you, it was a great opportunity to, to kind of talk with a very different perspectives and very different voices. And what they did was they had about half an hour, 45 minutes after kind of one of those panels where you kind of were given a, a question about what the panel was and you all had to kind of discuss yeah. it. And one person was kind of the note taker. And were you Scrum. back in the same circle, same group? Each yes. after each, where you yeah. stuck with that. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. you'd walk in, you'd sit down, you'd be with these, you know, what, six six or seven people. Yeah. Yeah, from some place, so you didn't know. They would have, I think, a keynote, then they would have maybe two or three short presentations from practitioners, and then they would have um, you talking at, on the table with the people there for about 45 minutes. And then people would kind of maybe 15 minutes report back 
what they had talked about. But they were also using the thing that... Mentimeter. Exactly. So there was also a kind of yeah, written record being yeah, constantly generated that you could refer to. Yeah. We did. I mean, my question... I, I agree. I think that that format worked really, really well. But my question, I, still, I guess, would still be, what would it mean to bring participants into that space? And would that, would that still work? There's a great project um, called the University of the Armageddon, which um, invited people who, non-researchers, to reflect on their experiences of being involved in research projects and the kinds of, you know, tokenism that they that they kind of felt they, they experienced and and very you know, almost those kind of microaggressions, those small things that I guess when you're involved, when you when you you've grown up within an academic environment you kind of are very used to certain things but if you haven't then some of these things can be very alienating and very difficult I, I, and again it's an open question I don't know I don't know what it would mean you know in some of the groups that I've worked with with with, with you know participants in cultural projects whether they would get a lot out of that process whether it would be a positive thing or whether they would find that difficult you know is there a, is there even more that we can do you know that was one of the things I was thinking you know, so going back to what I was saying about this feeling of guilt about you know, why am I in the room when others are not I was kind of thinking you know, so how could we do this in, in the future could could everybody give up their ticket and pass it on to somebody else who wouldn't ordinarily be in the room what would that mean how would that be facilitated you know Obviously, ideally, these kinds of things come from people themselves. It's, all, it's impossible to, to organise an event of this nature without, in some way... But, you know. I mean, we were talking uh, with Leila about the um, other form, forums like jury service and citizens' assemblies, <laughs> mm, yeah. where there's... The, the, I mean, certainly in jury service, the, there is no facilitator. The jury mm. has to basically kind of self-organise themselves and have a discussion about the evidence in order to make a decision. Mm. And that's interesting. they're not necessarily willingly there are they they're there because if they don't turn up they'll get i don't know to get a fine or get thrown into jail yourself i don't know in the yeah. US, it's yeah. quite serious Both. it's quite serious <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and citizens assembly i think you it's not like you don't have to turn up but mm. you're invited into that space and again i think there's probably quite elaborate i don't know i don't know because i've not been anymore but i imagine the facilitation is much more overt in those situations mm. where you've got um but the idea that there's a group of people who are kind of it almost involves a commitment whether you you willingly and in, in, in uh, there to begin with or not but you're you're kind of committed to figuring something out together mm. and discussing something of you've got a common kind of um concern or the jury model is interesting because it's kind of forced participation yeah, isn't it, it? i guess yeah. the citizens assembly people will self-nominate I, or yeah you get i think you get invited and yeah. then you can either yeah, say yes or no to that invitation. Yeah, so that will attract people who are who are, who are interested already in, in well, being part of that yes, process, yeah. or who are willing to, to put themselves through that process. But you get paid jury service. You get what, what happens with jury? Do you get paid leave? You don't. You, I think your employer has get, to yeah, cover yeah. the cost of your. So it's it's leave. not you're not going to be ideally, although I'm sure you are sort of out of pocket. Yeah. The idea is that you're not out of pocket in either citizens assembly. Mm. You know, this, this enforced participation isn't financially onerous, at least. I mean, I'm just wondering what the financial situation is. Like, the idea, I mean, again, this is probably a very stupid thing to say, but but I wonder if people's familiarity with what jury service might be is greater than in some of the the, the discussions around cultural Mm -hmm. policy because, you know, we see it in movies, we see it on TV, we have some sense of what criminal justice is and what that, so when when you're called up, I imagine there are relatively few people who would just go, I have no understanding of what this would entail and I I kind of don't even know what's being asked of me, although perhaps there is. I feel that might be slightly different within culture because I'm not sure that we're all encouraged to think about these questions outside of you know these these quite limited situations. So it would be how would people where would people find the code 
to, to, to behave within. But then the clones that need disrupting, don't well, they? Well, absolutely. And that's the thing. If we all gave up our... Like, the next uh, cultural policy conference or whatever it is, all the academics gave their tickets to somebody they've been working with outside academia. To be so interesting. Then, and just let it be, What see what happens. And maybe, I don't know, that'd be too anarchic, is it? Is it can, we, can, we, can we bear to, like, let go? Or alternatively, if you're going to... If you're a conference organiser... You extend not one but two, yeah, right. And maybe you give you have a fund to financially support people's participation in the same way that you. I mean, I don't. In the states, when you're on a jury, you know it's like uh, it's treated. If you're employed, it's treated like sick leave. Only you don't. You know, you get the company you're working for takes the hit of paying you your wage. So maybe that's something to start asking about and demanding so that, you know, like if I was presenting about something, someone who was part of that project, right, who wasn't, you know, another academic would get to come with me and they wouldn't have to pay the fee and maybe, you know. It would be important to find a way to facilitate that so that people felt free to, to be critical of that process. I can imagine there's a sense of gratitude that comes along when I mean, it's part of the work I'm doing at the moment on failure in cultural participation projects but people are often very grateful for quite modest um, you know, gest- gestures towards you know, inclusion and um, uh, you know, it would be important that people were felt able to, mm. to, to, to say actually you know, my experience of this is quite different from the official one that's being spoken here by my my collaborator and I think that would be quite difficult if you're being funded you know by a university if, if University of Leeds allows me to bring along a participant they, they come with a sense of the gratitude for that experience yeah, yeah. That's, and performance the performance it's hard to have is wrapped up in all of this which is oh, yeah. we're talking about as well it's really fascinating again another episode <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, is there any are there any other sort of performance I'm just going to leave that out there in the air as a thing to come up come back to in the future and um cultural participation and the roles we're expected to play, the roles um, and consequences of playing those roles. Is there anything else you want to... Can I propose another well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, another podcast for you too? But I think like this idea of like what structurally, how do you do that question that you're asking? Is like how do you have more people in the room? How do you have more... How do we model the yeah. cultural democracy that we talk about? Yeah. So, and I think it'd, it'd be really interesting to see thinking about what are the sort of format and structures uh, and infrastructure that needs to happen but also what would that produce how would it be spatially organized other than like making sure all people could get into the room literally yeah yeah oh yeah because I think that would be I think that would be I'd like to see what that what that looks like you know and maybe it's just that you you know like with the citizen assemblies from what i've heard right is that there's a lot obviously and this maybe doesn't need to be said but there's a lot of organization that goes into mobilizing that to happen that people understand what a citizen assembly is because maybe voting in a ballot that is something that people are educated about doing but maybe people aren't educated about what a citizen assembly means. So there's a lot of that background stuff to make sure that it happens, and maybe there needs to be a new component of that for academic conferences about thinking about how to organize that. And I'd love to hear another. Let's do that. Oh, my goodness. I mean, as I keep, I keep bashing on the same, the same thing. I think it's really important that we, are, we, that we, we try to model the kind, of, the kind of participation that we, that we, we talk about, 
And I think that's really difficult. You know, I th- and I think it's the same with research. You know, I, we're all beneficiaries of, of a, a kind of a, an elite system that, that continues to exclude you know, a whole lot of people. I don't think it's possible for us ever to resolve it and to become neutral. I don't think that's possible. I think we have to be more open about it. I think we have to continually be problematizing our own position towards the things that we're talking about all the time and I don't personally feel that happens enough mm. um, I, you know, I'd, like to, I'd like to see that be a much more kind of yeah. integral and central part of the discussion that we're always having Great. So, Sophie do you have any last thoughts? Uh, yeah. I, I'm just echoing all of that I'm, I'm, <laughs> thank you so much um, I'm feeling yeah like it's been a full on couple of days and uh, <laughs> I'm going to write some notes if I have time but um, I'm also will put the links on the website, the Meanwhile and Abandoned Warehouse website, to the conference program background info to um, uh, Sarah and Lucy's work as well. So listeners out there can find out more. Thank you so much. For, uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.